This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Welcome to Problem Solved, the ISE podcast. I'm ISE's Michael Hughes. I'm here today with Ben Amaba, a licensed P in data science AI guru for IBM, and Michael Testani, who's the director of industrial outreach for Binghamton University's Watson School of Engineering and Applied Science. Welcome to Problem Solved, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Delighted to be here. And we're delighted to have you. So y'all did a really scintillating performance at the Engineering Lean and Six Sigma conference in September. Talked about big data, AI, artificial intelligence, Industry 4.0, and where ISEs fit into all of that. So why are ISEs the people the organizations need to turn to to deal with this new world? I think there is a huge opportunity for industrial engineers. Uh, One of the things we see for big data or even software is that they are actually taking a very industrial or manufacturing approach, just like data warehouses, software factory, or even agile manufacturing software right, which is embodied in our world today, is actually mimicking the skills and principles that industrial engineers have done. Now with this new digital world, the industrial engineer not only has to look at inventory, machines, manpower, and money, he's got to look at data. And industrial engineers understand a very pointed yet very important concept in that In order to manage, whether it's materials, manpower, machinery, money, or even data, the balance of social sciences, mathematical sciences, and physical sciences not only pertain to machines and inventory, it pertains to data itself. And that's why I believe the industrial engineers are going to be part uh, and play a large role in what I call the digital economy, where data is the new inventory, the new money, the new currency out there. So when I hear, you know, words like numbers and big data, you know, a lot of people out there outside of the industrial engineering realm, they immediately think of computer scientists, computer engineers and things like that. Is it the industrial and systems engineering take on human factors that kind of adds to that, that you're talking about essentially like a man moment and machine type of thing, although upgraded to humans moments and machines? Well, yeah, Mike, this is Mike. There's definitely a lot of parallels, right, to traditional uh, IE disciplines, right? And Ben made um, some great analogies to, you know, factories and supply chains. Mm -hmm. And I think those are right on. And, you know, so I think those, those disciplines and those mindsets give industrial engineers a great foundation to build upon. Um, And there is certainly some elements to data science that, you know, an industrial engineer would want to add to their repertoire so that they can play and and play well, right, in this, you know, coming age of artificial intelligence. So, you know, I think some of those skills would be like, you know, understanding machine learning, for example, uh, understanding natural language processing, what you can do with that, um, you know, digital image processing and, and how AI can use digital images to help businesses uh, or any organization, for that matter, make better decisions, you know, based on visual data. So, you know, I think I think IEs are grounded in a number of key areas. And, you know, fundamentally, it starts with general information theory. Which uh, industrial engineers and systems engineers have, and what is what is data? 
And how do we convert that into usable information? And, you know, more to that, how does that work inside a system? And I think the industrial and systems engineers have that broad system mindset. It's not only computer science and data science, uh, but it's, but it's the entire value chain or information chain, if you will, across that entire data stream. So, Michael, up there at Binghamton, you're working with a lot of the kids who are coming through the uh, engineering program there. Are they excited by this new world or are they kind of worried about how it's all going to unfold? That's that's a great question, Michael. I think they are excited because unlike me, (laughs) they've grown up with technology, right? So this doesn't scare them at all. I mean, they they jump right into Python and you know, try to learn how to code in Python because they realize, you know, that would help them, you know, gather data and, and, you know, cleanse data and even visualize data or, you know, other programming languages are and, and uh, other technologies that just not intimidated by it. Uh, so, so I think, I think they're excited about it. And I think, you know, uh, particularly when they talk to Ben and they hear uh-huh. you know, all the potential, uh, opportunities, what their future might look like, you know, leading a, a, an AI initiative in industry. I think they get even more excited. Well, getting to that, Ben, you know, you you really wowed the crowd at uh, the Engineering Lean and Six Sigma conference. And some of the stuff was talking about what an ISE can get if they enter this world of big data and AI. You know, compared to traditional salaries, what kind of salaries can could an undergrad be talking about, you know, jumping into this world of yours? Yeah, you know, the industrial engineer has so much opportunity traditionally as coming with the basic principles of understanding inventory. You know, some of the average salaries range between 76 to 80,000, kind of on the high end for traditional practices. When you're dealing with data, again, very similar to inventory, and you can understand not only the human factors of collecting that data, being the custodian of the data, putting it in a warehouse, analyzing it presenting it, right? Same thing we did with inventory in the past or physical areas. When you can do that with data, with the precision and accuracy that we're seeing from industrial engineers, we're looking at now 167,000, almost doubled of what we traditionally had. And even as high on some safety critical projects like the autonomous vehicle, where it intersects an automotive system with an individual, with the infrastructure, with the road system, they can go as high as 250,000. So depending on on the criticality, the complexity of the systems, and how they apply the mathematical sciences, the social sciences, and the physical sciences, it, it only accelerates. As the system gets more and more complex, which again, the industrial engineer has always been uh, juggling, again, resources between inventory, the facility, and the workers. If you add that data component of it, their salaries increase. So it's like a Rubik's Cube. The more volume you can manage, uh, articulate, analyze and design in a complex systems, the more money is proportionally equal to that. Uh, Again, especially as you start going towards safety critical systems where it has something to do with the health, the safety or the security of the public, I think it only can increase. Again, data is the new inventory and the new cash, which uh, the industrial engineer has always dealt with. You know, that's true. You look at the history of ISE throughout uh, the last hundred years or so. A lot of the stories that I read early on when I first came aboard at ISE talked about essentially the lack of data, that a lot of times industrial engineers out there in the field, they're trying to parse data out of every system they can because they don't have enough numbers to really make a good conclusion. Are we going to kind of get to the point where 
we're so awash in numbers that the critical factor is going to be picking out which data to pay attention to and which to kind of either set aside or leave on the shelf. Yeah, Michael, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the uh, beauties of artificial intelligence is through machine learning, right, artificial intelligence can actually tell us what data is important and what data we can leave on the shelf. So, you know, what's really good at is is pulling out patterns, right, or, or gems from these vast, you know, data mines of big data. So I think data science and machine learning specifically, I think, can, can help us in that regard. And I really do think uh, Mike is right on this. What we originally did with a clipboard for inventory, whether it was first in, last out, last in, first out. Now imagine if you had a cognitive partner, artificial intelligence, to transfer that from a clipboard, right, which are sheets of paper. When you look at pedophiles of data from different dimensions, different views, an industrial engineer has the basic concept. But now the matrix, right, is no longer 10 by 10, but it's hundreds of thousands by hundreds of thousands. And as like you alluded to, data is growing at an exponential rate. In fact, the average person for the entire world's population on average has 10 devices, whether it's a smartphone, an autonomous vehicle, a Fitbit, a smartwatch. The data is coming out there and coming at a rapid pace. And just like inventory, we need to learn how to categorize it. We learn how to prioritize it, to clean it, to sustain it. Again, same concepts, but just on a larger scale. Uh, again, an industrial engineer's position to do that. But like Mike alluded to, which a lot of people forget, artificial intelligence could be that uh, calculator, that clipboard, that slide rule that helps him get through the mass of data. And that's what we really need today, not only to look at the data and how it's being used, sustained, cleansed, and shined for the model, but the model itself. Again, IEs have been playing with operations, research, and mathematical sciences for many years. So not only do they understand the inventory of data, i.e. the big data warehouse, they understand the tools and techniques and models to extract uh, from that data information. Just uh, a perfect opportunity there that very few other disciplines, whether they're in the engineering, sciences, or other fields, actually have juggled those kind of complexities. So in this merger of machines and humans, kind of the IE on the shop floor, they're not going to have a robot in their hand that has like arms and legs and looks like, you know, a robot. They're going to have a computer in their hands that functions through artificial intelligence and that replaces their clipboard and their stopwatch of old. Yeah, that's a, that's a great visualization, Mike. And I think they're actually going to have both. Right. They are going to have that robot or cobot, right, that they train to, to help them do work. And, you know, the robot might do the more repetitive work. And, you know, the the IE is going to do, you know, more of the creative work and the knowledge management type work. So I think they're going to have both. But I really love your point on the tablet replacing the clipboard. Cause, cause I think you're absolutely right on. I think in, in the coming years and in, in some organizations that coming, those coming years are right now. Yeah. I think we'll have more data uh, than we have people to analyze. And, and that's why getting people trained up and proficient or at least comfortable with, with artificial intelligence is, is so key. Because uh, in, in our talk at the Engineering Lean Six Sigma conference, we talked about the recent Cisco study where next year there's going to be 50 billion, 50 billion with a B devices connected to the Internet. And that increases by a factor of 10. That goes up to 500 billion by 2030. That's just a ton of information that's that's crossing from devices into the Internet, out on the cloud. And, 
you know, we can really benefit. We being, you know, not just industry, but mankind, we can really benefit and make our lives better uh, for ourselves and for future generations if we can get really good at, at leveraging all those data. You know, this does sound like a brave new world. And you mentioned a little bit about the fear of AI and big data. The young kids, you say, don't seem to have much fear of it. But people like me who grew up watching Terminator, reading 1984, Skynet and Big Brother, you know, how do you get to us people? Because we've all been trained that we're supposed to resist, not welcome our robot overlords? That's a great question, Mike. And it's, it's. Um, I mean, I'll share with you my thoughts and I'm, I'm sure Ben has some great thoughts as well. You know, I, I think we've got to, we've got to come up with ways of introducing everything, everyone rather to, to artificial intelligence. And, you know, there's some, there's some fairly straightforward applications out there. I'm thinking back, you know, to, to when I first started hearing about artificial intelligence when I was still at IBM. And, you know, I started out with some Watson applications looking at sentiment analysis for, you know, feedback we might have gotten on a course that we ran or, you know, from a, from an end user or a particular client. And, you know, we could just do sentiment analysis on a, on a fairly small data set. And I think you can get started that way and, 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 you know, start to kind of break down those barriers of, of fear that might exist. So I think we have to create those paths for people too. But I think once we do that and once they see that, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't all that scary. This isn't all that hard, you know, because IBM has done a great job making it, making it simple for, for people like me and others to kind of go out there and, you know, play around with this and, and, and glean some value from it. Ben, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think you're absolutely right. Our goal is to democratize artificial intelligence, right? To see where we can use the power of artificial intelligence to help, not replace. And that's being a big term right now, democratization of artificial intelligence. It's the adaptation. And what I heard from one company, in fact, last week is people don't like force to change. But that's not saying they don't like to change, especially if they understand the better part of it. And again, that's part of the human factors, ergonomics and work design that industrial engineers are trained to do. Right. We used to say, hey, we want to change the shop floor. But if it's through the social sciences and teamwork and leadership and accountability, I think artificial intelligence will take that same track of uh, adoption and adaptation. I think human factors and social sciences will embrace trust, remove bias on technologies such as sentiment analysis. And I also think the IE individual or the professional is going to take one more step out there. He's going to determine whether the artificial intelligence machine needs to see, read, teach, or even act or speak on behalf of the individual. But I think the individual through social scientists has to determine that. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about what's coming around the world. People will figure out how to make change better for them. And instead of enforcing that change, making it prescriptive, people will adapt and figure out how this technology fits them the best. It's kind of the old ISE conundrum of you've got this great intervention. You want to change the, the, the factory floor or the warehouse floor or whatever environment you're working in. Well, you've got to get buy-in. You don't just go order people around or your workforce is going to resist and the greatest intervention in the world will be left on the shelf. And it sounds like it's going to be the same for AI and big data. Absolutely. Culture each strategy every time. Very true. That's a great point. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. You've got to get the buy-in. And, you know, and how you do that is, is 
an art. And, and I think we be, need to be training people in, you know, those aspects of change management as well. We can't just expect that, you know, hey, because we get it and we're bought in that, you know, everyone else is going to embrace this new technology and jump right on board. It just it just doesn't work that way. So I think we've got to be smart as to, you know, how we deploy artificial intelligence so that we get the buy in and adoption that we're going to desperately need to be successful. Yeah, I think plays a large role into all of this. And why are we working with Mike at Binghamton University? I think education and academics with industry partnering help transition that evolution or transformation. As long as the individuals are educated or aware, then the technology follows that cultural shift, that awareness, that education. So I also think that uh, these partnerships that we're doing, not only for professional organizations with the Institute for Industrial and Systems Engineers, but industry needs to partner with academia to educate and make aware of the do's and don'ts out there. And then once we get that done, I think that the IE has an opportunity in professional licensing, professional obligation. And that's where I think the evolution of AI will come, not only on the physical sciences and the social sciences, but our professional uh, accountability to roll out this technology that it does perform in the public's interest or the institute's interest or even the individual's interest. So, Ben, is that kind of why you really are saying that professional licensure for ISEs that's something that's going to grow in importance because of the ethics and the accountability with AI. You know, you hear about the autonomous vehicles and the occasional accident that happens and where does the liability lie? So does all that flow from those concerns? Absolutely. And not only that, right? Again, we're responsibility not only for the physical sciences, the mathematical sciences, the actual calculation and the social sciences. We were talking about culture and how do we adapt. But the other thing that I also see in some of the best components, elements out there that technology is advancing, a lot of times the systems that fail aren't because of one individual component. Not only do IEs are responsible, again, for the physical, the mathematical, and social sciences, but the integration of the systems. A lot of systems we see fail, again, isn't from the individual component. It's the interaction of those components that maybe the glass that uh, interfaces to a certain metal slips. Or maybe the colors weren't right for human factors because the uh, sun was out or it was there's shadows on certain barcode readers. So I think there's actually two components, not only the individual sciences, again, the mathematical, physical and social sciences, but the systems integration that the IE has figured out, whether it was from the manufacturing floor to the supply chain, they understand the trade-off analysis and thresholds of how components fit together and how do you optimally fit them together and do continuous improvement, right? Because that's another thing that we've got to consider. Change is inevitable. Understanding the systems behind change is just as important as the system when it was first invented. You know, Ben, early on in my time here at ISE, somebody told me that ISEs were great generalists. They didn't have to be experts at everything. They needed to understand enough about each system and how they work together, which is why maybe you don't want a computer scientist doing these things. You want the ISE because they are adept at taking all those different systems and breaking down those silos and making sure that where they join together, there's not a, a loss of transfer of information or data from system to system that breaks the whole thing down. 
Exactly. Think of it as an orchestra, right? We don't want to go. We need to understand in each instrument, whether it's the string, the brass, the percussion. But in order to really make music, right, that is in the interest of the public, there's got to be somebody that understands the different competencies, not so much that we've got to be a maestro at each one of them, but somebody's got to connect the orchestra. Somebody's got to document the music and reuse the music and continuously improve on that when a new instrument comes into play, whether it's digital or whether it's analog, it's that orchestration that sometimes is the biggest hindrance of that technology or that music to evolve. And I see a big role for industrial engineers to play a part in the systems, the orchestration, but understanding each individual component and the interaction of those components. That makes a lot of sense because if you've got the percussion turned up to 11 and the strings at one, it's just going to sound like a battering ram, not a nice orchestra. That's correct. And it could even be harmful depending on the decibel level, right? <laughs> quite true. Quite true. So some of the other industries, petroleum, mining, construction, et cetera, are, are they cognizant of the fact that they need ISEs to survive and thrive in this big data world? And if not, how do we get them to recognize these facts? So, Mike, that's a great question. And I'll add one to that, too. And I'll say healthcare because I think we're starting to see now that healthcare, you know, particularly with, with baby boomers aging, right, more and more of us, you know, are going to be needing in need of healthcare uh, and putting more and more uh, stress, if you will, on these healthcare systems. So, you know, they are quickly becoming complex systems. And and I would say they're in great need of IE and the use of artificial intelligence as well to help better manage those complex systems. So I I know Ben has a a better perspective than I of of all the other industries, uh, but I just wanted to make a point uh, for healthcare as we're seeing some trending there as well. There is a big boom for industrial engineers today and other industries like petroleum, mining and construction that didn't originally have the precision and accuracy that they needed because at times their profit margins were so huge and that they had a monopoly on certain resources, people or even geographies around the world. Now, as we get more complex we're seeing that the petroleum industry, I, uh, healthcare and mining are specifically adopting to it, especially construction. In fact, in construction, sometimes the variance, right, on schedule and resources could be as high as 50, 60, even 70%. Yet on the map, uh, manufacturing floor, the tolerance, uh, outside of 5% is unacceptable. So they're starting to see the benefit of the industrial engineers. And not only did we see those specific industries, healthcare, petroleum, mining, public health, uh, seeing more logistics and controlling variants, looking at workflow and having uh, better practices, they're actually recruiting those individuals. Uh, Again, we see it even in the software world that ties these individual threads together. I mean, they're taking our words. Again, software factory, software engineers are looking, how was the manufacturing floor done? development and operations. That's what NIE did. He developed a product and then operationalized it. Now you've got software factories, data warehouses, warehouses, you know, those were inventory warehouses, but the same principles apply not only to inventory, it applies to data. And now that we see this agile manufacturing or agility in developing software in the petroleum, mining, construction industry, they're adopting it more and more. In fact, both in Houston, uh, Detroit, some of the big cities that uh, circle 
circumvent or surround themselves in specific industries. They're understanding that industrial engineers are making a big impact in orchestrating the music, orchestrating the individual components. There's something called the utter back effect. Although a specific technology may evolve and even mature without understanding the process, uh, that conflict between the process and technology could actually put you out of business. So you need to understand not only the technology as it evolves, but the technology within the system and within the process. And that's why I think other industries are starting to adopt industrial engineers. Now, what we also see that has allowed industrial engineers to get more visibility and transparency, they're actually allowing other disciplines to come into uh, you know, that department to learn things like data sciences, industrial engineers, uh, strategic management. So we see the cross-pollination for uh, other disciplines coming into the IE programs, learning more. But we also see IEs uh, doing outreach programs to actually invite other professions to see whether it's healthcare individuals to see what visibility on uh, the emergency room floor looks like. Why do we use Kanban? Why do we use just in time? And why do we use continuous improvement? So I definitively believe that the other disciplines are seeing the benefit and starting to integrate it into their organization. So it sounds like the future world, there really are no silos going to be left. So if I'm an undergrad ISE or a master's student or somewhere along the way. What do I need to be looking for in my course set schedule if I'm at Binghamton University or another university to prepare myself for this new world? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. I think the students got to be looking for data science as a part of not just their elective courses, but part of their core courses. You know, it's got to be part of the systems science or systems engineering classes that they're taking right alongside of their industrial engineering classes. And I think, you know, that coursework, whether it's in fuzzy logic or neural networks or genetic algorithms or machine learning, I think they've got to be making sure that's a part of their curriculum. Absolutely. You know, just like they've used the math, the physical science and the social sciences to actually monitor, look at the variance. Again, I always look at they look at it from a personnel perspective, right? You manage personnel, you manage inventory, you're looking for the variance, the economic order quantities, the points. Data is the same way. There might be different tools like, you know, that we could call MongoDB or Python, but they're the same principles, right? Now I'm trying to figure out which data goes in, which data goes out. In fact, I've heard a lot of data engineer, data scientists call out the five S's, right, that we're all familiar with that actually came from the factory floor. So there's not a big difference between cleansing inventory, right, making sure you have the right inventory at the right position. Same thing with the data. Let's make sure that the right data, the right position is used for the right reasoning. So the idiosyncrasies that Mike is alluding to, you understand the math, the social sciences, the physical sciences. Now just add that fourth layer, fifth layer of data. And I think the IEs normally and traditionally gravitate to being able to see that. We don't always see what the machine does because sometimes it's a black box. You don't always see what the data does because it's in a model, but we have the expertise and know-how to extract that data, look at the math behind it, and understand what's really happening in the black box of data. So do either of you right now have any great examples of ISEs using big data and AI to either surface a problem 
or solve a problem or a combination of both? Another great question. I, I have one that springs to mind, and I'm sure Ben has dozens because he's he's working very closely with IEs in industry, uh, as are we at the university. And, you know, one comes to mind that is actually in healthcare, where a healthcare provider is using artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to predict and prevent certain health-related diseases within the patient. So, you know, diseases like septus or things that you can contract during your stay, uh, artificial intelligence is being used to predict uh, likely candidates, those that uh, might be at risk of contracting, you know, these types of diseases. And the healthcare providers are able to take proactive measures to prevent those diseases from coming to reality. So by identifying somebody who is at risk, the healthcare provider, as opposed to trying to you know, put a blanket intervention among the entire population, they can just target their resources toward those people who are at risk and minimize the use of resources while simultaneously preventing disease. Yeah, exactly right, Michael. Well said and very targeted and could be very customized towards the special needs of that individual patient who's at risk versus the blanket approach that, uh, that you aptly described. So, Ben, I won't make you give me dozens, but if you give me one or two, that will be kind of cool. You know, we have seen this skyrocket. The big one we see, especially in the engineering world or high tech worlds, is knowledge management, right? Using visual uh, recognition, verbal recognition, seeing patterns, or like Michael alluded to, sensitivity analysis. Mm -hmm. In fact, one... Uh, company called Woodside in Australia, they will tell you that we taught artificial intelligence how to think as one engineer. The artificial intelligence Watson teach us how to think like 10,000 engineers, right? It's capturing the knowledge management of several engineers and combining their different perspectives. As you know, you used to see just front view of a house. Now with 10,000 engineers, you see a thousand views of that house and you can improve it. We even see it in the restaurant business. In fact, one restaurateur, uh, David Reed, who actually spoke in Houston, talked about how uh, Chick-fil-A uses visual recognition to ensure the integrity and the quality of chicken through visual recognition. They can tell uh, the quality of the chicken going through the manufacturing line at a Chick-fil-A. Wonderful example. And then, of course, the third example that we all personally are affected by is the autonomous vehicle. The autonomous vehicle feels, you know, like if we can take the learnings of not only the infrastructure, but drivers and the vehicle itself, as well as pedestrians out in the market and infrastructure that, that's out there, it could save millions of lives, if not millions of productivity and insurance claims that are out there. So I see knowledge management, uh, visual recognition for our food, even the autonomous vehicle comes to mind almost immediately as we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. That sounds really cool. You know, getting the autonomous vehicle paradigm out there. I read a story, I actually wrote one a couple of years ago, talked about imagine Los Angeles with only 1 million vehicles as opposed to 7 million vehicles and how pleasant a drive that will be to get around versus what they have to deal with right now. Yeah. In fact, I just read an article this morning where they're actually taking the algorithm used by ants, right? Ants are so effective. They've got their own algorithm where you never see them run into each other, but they're actually able to increase the productivity with half the workers. What if we could build that natural language machine learning into our vehicles? Would we be as efficient as the ant system? You know, using biomimicry in artificial intelligence and machine learning, like you said, to get rid of a hundred cars 
yards, but be just as effective with 10. So artificial intelligence, biomimicry, it could solve the congestions just in the vehicle and transportation system in our large cities alone. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned the ant factory optimization, I guess is what you call it. One of the first articles that I edited for Industrial Management Magazine was a guy named Brian Kleiner at Cal State Fullerton. And it talked about using ant colony optimization for logistics routes. I was like, wow, this stuff is really powerful. Yes, exactly. We could learn from them, learn all the adaptations of uh, biomimicry. And now instead of one individual colony or one individual species, if we could combine the knowledge management, right, that we're one engineer teaches AI and then AI teaches them how to think like 10,000 engineers, not only the ant colonies, but different biomimicry opportunities that are out there that we could not only optimize our society, but the society as a whole on this earth is phenomenal. The opportunity is tremendous. And now that we've got the computing capacity, the network capacity, and then the talent capacity, I think that it opens up just tremendous opportunities for the industrial engineer. Yeah, that's it. I agree. But all those things need to come together. And you have the computing power now. You have the intelligent agents with you know machine learning and other facets of AI. So you know, you can you can follow these ant patterns and, you know, pick up pick up patterns that the traditional industrial engineer just just wouldn't see, even with, you know, sophisticated algorithms and heuristics. Uh, AI can can do that now right through the various facets and assets that, uh, that we can bring to bear. So it really is exciting. So if I'm a mid-career ISE and I'm in a, I guess, traditional ISC discipline. And I'm as excited as you two are about big data and industry 4.0 and artificial intelligence. How can I turn my career around? What What is out there for me to go to to learn and to enter this world? Well, great, great question. And and there's a lot of paths for, for that person, right? It doesn't mean, you know, you, you have to go back to school for, you know, two years to get your master's degree or three or four PhD, uh, because there's a lot of learning assets available. Uh, because I think I think the world sees that you know this is a critical skill, and you know if we don't all get on board and, and start providing pathways for for people to learn this stuff, you know we're not going to have anywhere near the skills we need to to keep up with demand. So you know certainly our higher education providers like Binghamton University or my office specifically you know that does a lot of not for credit continuing education uh their pathways but you know you certainly don't have to limit yourself to just Binghamton University go out there on the web and you know you'll find you know courses on programming in python you find courses on machine learning on digital imagery and you know artificial intelligence so there's all sorts of pathways you can take there and, you know, I believe this is going to be the, the path of the future, right? It, the days of getting a four-year degree or a seven-year degree and, you know, just closing your book, those days are over. The world is changing too fast, technologies advancing too rapidly to be able to 
I'll say thrive or compete in, in industry today if you don't keep current with your skill sets. And, and fortunately, higher education providers and not-for-profit and for-profit education providers, I think, are answering that call. And they're, and they're providing a lot of pathways for mid-career, early career, and advanced careers to just, just be lifelong learners. So the world of continuous improvement, gentlemen, is it's not a world of continuous improvement anymore. It's going to become a world of continuous learning or else you're just going to be left on the side of the road. There you go. Well said. That is what a great opportunity to continuously learn, right? To constantly evolve, whether I call them digitally dexterous. And it really doesn't have to do with the entering workforce, mid-career, even tenured professionals. The digitally dexterous, right? We've seen cross all generations. It's the willingness to learn and contribute. Once you're past that, the domain knowledge that you've collected through all your career, even mid-career, that you've captured that. That is a asset that you have. And then applying the mathematical sciences, which they learn, all you have now is the digital sciences that you've got to deal with, the new data and information systems. And what I will say, even for those fear individuals that maybe were tenured and fear the new technologies coming out there, what a lot of the uh, vendors and industry and academia are doing it is they're encapsulating it, making it better user friendly. Again, another uh, opportunity for IEs, but they're putting it in technologies such as Docker, microservice, Kubernetes, or these terms where it's drag and drop. Think about when we used to make uh, circuit boards a long time ago. You'd have to literally burn each chip, each capacitor, everything in there down the manufacturing line. Now, today, they print it out, they stamp it out it's like Lego blocks. So I think. We might think it might get complex, but there are individuals out there to, again, democratize artificial intelligence. So it makes it easier for the digitally dexterous or curiosity of whether you're incoming, mid-career or tenured to make it easier to adapt to. And we'll see continuous evolution, just like we saw in the auto industry in, what, 90 years. Uh, I think it's going to happen faster, but I think the user interface of these new technologies are going to be much, much easier than the evolution even of the vehicle. So if you've got your mid-career ISE, you were talking earlier in the conversation about knowledge management, that mid-career guy or girl, they've got a lot of tribal knowledge already that's valuable. So if they're not afraid of Facebook and they're not afraid of big data and they're not afraid of machine language and they're not afraid of artificial intelligence, they can integrate themselves in that and use that tribal knowledge to their advantage. Almost immediately. And you know what I hear from mid-career individuals that start to understand that? This is what they tell me. Not only have I learned this wasn't as hard as I thought it was, there were ideas that I wanted to implement earlier in my career. Now I've got the capacity to do that. So I see less fear that they trying to catch up to the digital world. The statement is, I had an idea. And now that the infrastructure is there, I can... Uh, now implement that idea. I'm not stuck with the mundane uh, activities that the AI machine can take. I'm now in a position where I can think of the innovative ideas, test them faster. All those things that I had actually, you know, put aside uh, uh, from the past, now it can start implementing without the fear of the infrastructure supporting it. So I'm seeing more mid-career individuals becoming entrepreneurs of their own profession to have ideas put to the table that they had shelved many years ago. So I'm actually seeing the opposite, especially those that have curiosity and still want to contribute to the world. Well, that's great because, you know, the dreams of the past that they might have set aside now with the kind of infrastructure we have or that's coming aboard, 
those dreams of the past can become the reality of the future. Absolutely. I noticed just recently, right, because I have adopted like the smartwatches. Until I got a smartwatch, I didn't even imagine that the Dick Tracy world would come true. It's amazing because I'm seeing mid-career individuals going, wow, if I could keep my health and track my health there, that means I can track noise in a manufacturing plant so I don't have to measure the decibel level. I can use my smartphone, my smartwatch. What an idea, right? Now I can use things that I use versatilely anywhere into the manufacturing plant. So now these technologies are bringing out ideas that we never imagined when we were thinking that Dick Tracy's watch or walkie-talkie or phone could do the things that it can today. So these mid-career people that know and understand the constraints of uh, systems in the past are opening up those apertures to say, now we can solve those problems. And uh, the smartwatch is a perfect example. The things that it can do from being a compass to uh, being a level leveler, understanding noise pollution. Now you're seeing the IE use these technologies, which originally started from a personal uh, productivity tool to now to an industrial enterprise tool. Well, actually, you're wrong there, Ben. They actually started in a comic strip. Ah, yeah, you're right. It started in a comic strip. Yeah, I love the, I love the Dick Tracy example. I think the mid-career or late career right, are seeing that, you know, technology can actually help them solve the problems that, you know, they've been frustrated with for years. And now it not only gives them the time to do it, but it gives them, you know, the technology and the wherewithal to solve them as well. So speaking of, you know, solving problems in education, you two are gathered up there in Binghamton for the next couple of days. What is the confab that you two have going up there? What's going on? Oh, great question, Mike, and thanks for asking. Yeah, we actually have a data sciences and artificial intelligence workshop that we're hosting here at Binghamton University. And the instructors for the course are actually IBM subject matter experts. So Ben and his colleagues will actually be teaching our students, our faculty, and our local industry what AI is all about. And they're going to go through a hands-on case study in one of our tracks. We call it a technology track. They're going to actually do a hands-on case study activity where they're going to pull big data down from the cloud. Um, they're going to, they're going to data mine that they're going to, they're going to scrub it, purge it, manage it, and then apply machine learning to it. So they can actually predict breakdown of this particular equipment. In this case, Ben, I think it's a, it's a drilling experiment, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. And isn't that wonderful? And what Mike also was enabled to do, you know, putting us into a learning facility, a learning environment so that we can share ideas, uh, you know, encapsulate diversity and inclusion. Right. That's what Binghamton is well known for. But not only will you learn the technical track, the hands on to actually drive this new technology, we're going to also have a business track. So allowing the business users right outside of the engineering discipline to understand the application, the return on investment, the organizational behavior and cultural acceptance. So it's just a perfect opportunity to put ourselves in a learning environment where we can truly co-collaborate and actually implement the concepts of diversity and inclusion. And I think that is very, very important as we advance this uh, technology, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence. We're going at it as a, a group of individuals and professionals versus any one single silo. So you're going to be dealing with uh, applying machine learning, artificial intelligence and everything 
to, you know, mean time between failure all the way up to the business level case. Exactly. That's exactly right. That sounds cool. Now, this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but Carol LeBlanc, who runs the Engineering Lean and Six Sigma conference, told me that she is working with Ben, I believe, on doing a fly-in one-day big data conference thingy or something sometime in March. Is is that ready to talk about now or should we have that shelved right now? You know, the concept is beautiful. And Mike and I have actually been actively talking about that with uh, our his constituents and peers in academia, government and industry. We, In fact, we were at Atlanta uh, last week uh, with the Council of Industrial and Systems Engineers. One of the things they uh, also brought up is it's going to be more than one day. There are so many people attracted to this new technology as industrial engineers. What we've been uh, battling about or discussing is maybe we should include it as part of the annual conference so that more people can actually take advantage of the group as a, a collaborative group. That way they can bring their traditional industrial engineering challenges and see how digital technology, artificial intelligence and machine learning could affect that. So it's kind of in discussion right now. And we want to be able to not only just have a lot of people uh, take advantage of it, but maybe we should be leveraging the annual conference so that more people are aware of it versus just one fly in for one day, which might be a little bit rushed. So that's true. We're discussing that. As we speak. And we are talking about really big things. And the annual conference is coming up end of May, beginning of June 2020 uh, in New Orleans, I believe it is this year. So looking forward to that. Well, gentlemen, I have gone through all of the questions that I had, but I always leave a little bit of time at the end. If there is something that uh, in my ignorance about the subject, I just did not ask that y'all are dying to answer. Now is your time. Yeah, thank you, Mike. This was great. And, and thanks for the opportunity to, to do this podcast. I mean, as you can see, both Ben and I are really excited about this topic uh, because it offers such great opportunities for industrial engineers. So, um we're delighted to just share our perspective with you. And, and I just want to come back to a, a topic that I believe is, is really important. We talk about the industrial engineers having this systems perspective. And, and, and Ben, you hit it on a couple of times. And I just want to reemphasize it as we close, right? Because I think, I think there's an element that IEs have that other engineering disciplines don't tend to have. And, and certainly it's that broad perspective but they also bring in this, this human element that few other disciplines can bring into this level. And, you know, we, we talked about these autonomous vehicles and, you know, there's other ways that technology and, and biology, right, the human experience are converging. And, and I think IEs are uniquely positioned to address that, not only from a human factors perspective, you know, but also from an ethical perspective. Uh, so Ben's quick to emphasize the need for professional engineering disciplines, and I, I support him in that as well. And I think, you know, you add the professional engineering discipline to the IE and the data science, and, you know, you've got an engineer that can just do phenomenal things in terms of, you know, leading projects that are, are, are going to change our future. I totally agree with Mike. It literally is going to change the future. Now, what a lot of people ask, by how much, right? That's the uh, industrial engineering, by how much? And I do want to touch on this to know the impact that the profession can have. And I'll just read a couple of statistics that I do want to be sure that this isn't just visionary. This isn't an emerging technology. It's an existing technology. In 2021, artificial intelligence, augmentation, 
right? Just the cognitive capabilities, not for replacement, will generate $2.9 trillion in business value and recover over 6.2 billion hours of worker productivity, according to Gartner. These are big numbers and these are not anecdotal. Again, this is no longer an emerging technology. This is an existing technology. And we talked, uh, Deloitte actually did a study in the Manufacturing Institute. When we talked to the executives on how are they going to perform in the manufacturing world, they rated 70% of their current manufacturing employees are actually deficient in technology and computer skills. And they need to close that gap in order not only to be competitive, but do what's right out there. And that's why the salary are so high out there. And and again, one of the other things from MIT Sloan, although everybody knows it's an existing technology that's out there, only 20% of the companies surveyed today have implemented AI into some form of their process. Only 20%. So the opportunity is huge. Yet the executives and everybody that has seen it in production say 70% of the business executives rated analytics, including artificial intelligence, as very or extremely important. Less than 2% say, hey, it's generic in nature, but it's not. In fact, when artificial intelligence first started, it was a cost-driven justification. And and let me kind of talk to the statistics on why, again, the salary of talent is so high. Just in a furnace, a a heat treatment plant, when the power goes out, it costs companies $60,000 for a 20-minute power outage. Imagine if you could predict that and imagine if you had a cognitive tool that can actually prevent that. Chemical companies out there can incur $2,000 per hour in wasted material inputs, right? Inspection of inputs coming out. That could add up to almost $15,000 an hour. A drilling platform today produces about 200,000 barrels of oil each day, which breaks down to roughly about 8,300, thousand barrels per hour with oil prices, even if it's $60 per barrel, just one hour offline, right? And we could have used AI, machine learning, cognitive capabilities. They will lose $500,000 in just one hour. Last one, a mining machine, right? That's down for more than 24 hours justifies a replacement between 1 million to $1.5 million a day. How can we prevent that? And the stats show, right, that if you use data just as a single source of truth, I'm just trying to figure out what's really out there. You could actually be 4.6 points higher than the industry average on net margin. That talks about money and specifics. And if you use it strategically for artificial intelligence, it could be as high as six points up net margin. And what are we finding out there? And this is one of the big takeaways that we'll actually talk about tomorrow. And we talked about in Houston, AI has made it now to the boardroom. It's a serious and necessary initiative. Now the responsibility is going to vice presidents and the boards, but yet 60% of the lines of business owners in their organization say they're behind. And the 49% of the technical practitioners feel the same. Why wouldn't the industrial engineer actually close that gap? There's too much opportunity. People recognize it. And we've seen this is no longer an emerging technology, but an existing technology, not just for one institution or for one individual, but for sectors, 
countries and institutions at its highest level. So the future is here. It's not in the past and it's not predicted. Get on board now or you and your business and maybe your career will be left in the dust. That's the hard truth. 70% of the businesses out there will be affected in the next three years. More people are pouring money into data scientists to that get that competitive advantage, understanding their data as well as their inventory, their machines, their people, or even their cash flow. Information flow has now become not a replacement for the other assets because you still got to build something, but extracting intelligence from that data is critically important to survive. Well, Ben Amaba of IBM and Michael Testani of Binghamton University, we appreciate you joining us for this episode of Problem Solved with ISE podcast. I'm Michael Hughes. Gentlemen, have a fantastic day. Thank you, Michael. You as well. Thank you, Michael. This has been an episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. If you like what you've heard, then please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you're an IISE member, you can participate in discussions about this and other episodes at connect.iise.org. If you're not a member yet, then you can learn all about the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers at our website, iise.org. Thanks for listening to our show. 